This show is sponsored by you. Stick around till after the news to hear more about how you can help sponsor the Cup of Go podcast. This is Cup of Go for February 23rd, 2024. (laughs) Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in 15 minutes a week or so. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. Everybody say congrats. The biggest news of the day. Congrats. My sister just gave birth. Yay. A brand new gopher. (laughs) I don't know about that. Maybe by the time she grows up, we won't need programming languages anymore. But anyway, yeah, my sister gave birth. So we're going to do a quick show and then I'm going to run off. And Jonathan's going to do the super interesting interview we have alone. So let's get started. Awesome. I'm hyped. I'm hyped. Just to clarify, though, the interview is not for this episode. It'll be in a coming episode because uh, it's later this afternoon. But uh, so we don't have an interview for you on this show today. But stick around. We do have interviews coming up in the coming weeks. So, Shai, congratulations to you, Thank to you. your sister, to your family. Uh, if anybody wants to congratulate you about that in person, is there any opportunity to do that coming soon? Yeah. So you can go to the Cup of Go Slack and say congratulations to my sister. She's named Hagar, H-A-G-A-R. Just write something nice and I'll show her screenshots. I'm sure she'll appreciate it. She doesn't listen to the show. I'll, I'll show her the screenshots from the Slack channel. Awesome. So let's talk about Go News, even let's though the most Go exciting news, news is uh, my new nephew. Yes, yes. So in exciting Go News, uh, if you wanted to, to congratulate Shai in person, there's going to be a meetup coming up in, in Israel. They're, they're getting back on track with their meetups. So March 12th at Orca, where Shai works, you could go say hi to Shai in person, shake his hand, and learn about some Go stuff in person. So check that out. And there's another meetup if you want to meet Jonathan uh, on the flip side at Creative Fabrica, February 27th. Yeah, that's on Tuesday. Coming right up. Yeah, coming right up. Opens at the 6.30, then some talks, and then some drinks at a nearby bar. Funnily enough, there's a section called What's New in Go, uh, which was the original inspiration for the show you're listening to right now. And two cool talks. There's one lightning talk, which I'm like, I don't know. Uh, and <laughs> But the talks themselves look uh, pretty interesting. Combined unit and integration testing. That sounds super useful. Like I would, I would listen to that on YouTube if you're recording it. Do you record the meetups? We have occasionally, but it's not a regular occurrence, so I wouldn't hold your breath on this one. Well, I guess the best option you have is to sign up for the podcast, follow our episodes, and then when the next episode come out, Jonathan will probably tell us how the meetup went. I could do that. Yeah. No pressure, though. We're, no we're just happy that you're here. All right. So, so last episode, or two episodes ago, we had our big Go 122 episode. It came out. Everybody was excited. And I remember when uh, 121 came out, there were some issues upgrading. And I've gotten some uh, mixed responses. In our channel uh, on Slack, people have been telling about some issues, upgrading, some crashes, and unfortunately at work as well. Uh, So at work, we have some uh, Go backend code and things that relate to there was some data races, new data races introduced, some compiler bugs. We haven't figured out why yet. It's not like something I did, something uh, someone else from the team did. So I'm letting them figure it out. Uh, but yeah, not a smooth rollout so far. I'm wondering if it's just impossible to avoid in every version or like, did we do too many changes this time? Well, you may recall the last uh, six months ago with the last release, 121, I had crashes at my work with one of my clients. Uh, that was related to the, the way that an, the init order changed of, of initializing dependencies. All right. The init thing, right? Yeah. 
but know. you shouldn't have a lot of coding in it anyway. So <laughs> shouldn't, but this particular this particular uh, project did. But yeah, I think the lesson here is be cautious when upgrading. Even though Go tries really hard to be stable and backward compatible, it's not always possible. I'm wondering if it's best practice to not upgrade until like two minor versions are out or even be super conservative. Like with Python, for example, at work, which is a lot less stable overall, we don't upgrade to the major version until the next major version comes out. So we really want to upgrade to 3.12 because it has some performance uh, improvements. Nothing next to go, you know what I mean? But (laughs) still, they're trying. They're trying to be a real language uh, or (laughs) pretend to be one. But we don't want to upgrade because it just feels so irresponsible and you know all the package management stuff is really difficult i'm wondering if uh, at least for enterprise work you'll stay one version behind with go as well or because of the go compatibility promise you you actually sort of hamstring yourself because you by the end of the six months you have to upgrade to the next one mm-hmm. what have you seen in your projects i've definitely spoken to people who have the policy of only use latest version minus one in go i think it's most common though with libraries because you want to support people who who do that you know mm. but yeah i've never worked on a project that had a, a firm policy no that's not quite true i did work on one project i can't remember which one it was i, I was just there for a short time but they had a uh, i don't remember if it was a, a major version minus one or if they just waited you know like a month after the release or something like that i think there was more that they had a, a sort of a security and stability team that vetted every new new version before it was accepted so yeah I think that makes sense in certain, uh, you know, high risk uh, environments. Um, you know, it's, it's fine if that's uh, appropriate for your business model. So, uh, what I would say at the very least is that at this point, I think most of the major bugs have been ironed out. And if you wait like two more weeks, you're probably pretty safe. So, if you've been holding off, you should be fine at this point, or maybe like two weeks from now. I hope that uh, I can uh, report back in two weeks that stuff at work has stabilized and it can be. Even at our code at work, which is messy, it works, then it probably works for you as well. It'll be interesting to see what's included in 122.1 whenever that drops, which should be soon. Shall we talk about proposals for a little while? Yeah, let's do some proposals. There's one interesting one that got declined about support for encrypted archives. Zip archives in particular, yeah. Yeah, so when you zip of a thing, you know, I go back to like WinRAR or 7-Zip or whatever. You can add a password, uh, which is something just useful, you know, if you have to share some sensitive files. I've done it a few dozens, like dozens of times in my lifetime, but never in code. I've never had to do it from like inside a project. I just used it here and there. But someone proposed, you know, adding support. There's archive slash zip libraries can go and they wanted to add support for encrypted archives since it's in the spec. The current implementation doesn't allow, uh, you know, doing it in the standard library. There are ways to do it in Go, which is important. Like there are libraries. It's just a question of how to do it in the standard lib. And it went the way where people agree that it could be useful, but there's no clear way to do it in the standard library. And basically there's no ergonomic API, so it's going to stay out. I think it's really informative to talk about this this comment from Russ Cox, where he kind of enumerates the the caveats, the problems with with doing this. Because, I mean, when I hear encrypted support for Zip, I'm like, yeah, of course, that sounds useful. Why wouldn't you do it? And how complicated can it be? I mean, you need to provide a password, right? Simple as pie, but not the cake, the number, when you actually learn about how complicated it can be. Because you can have a password for the entire thing, 
right? Yeah. You can also apparently you can encrypt only some files in the zip, yeah. which is weird. I didn't. I, I'm not sure what the use case is, but if the spec supports it, then we need to support it, right? And you can have a different password for each file if you want to. And you can have a separate certificate. I don't know the difference between a certificate and a password in this context, but you can have a different certificate for each file. You can have a different certificate for each file and for the entire archive. So like this, like whoever designed this encryption spec, uh, just gave it too much flexibility or something. Maybe it was a reason, but it makes it really difficult to write a clean API to handle this. And then kind of the clincher for me was the fact that it has, it supports a large variety of encryption algorithms. So we would have to make archive zip depend on all of those which would make anybody who doesn't care about encryption needs to import a whole bunch of dependencies just to open a zip file. And also, if you allow to like bring your own encryption instead, the API is going to get even a lot mm-hmm. worse, right? Because you want to somehow make sure that people don't mess up and bring you know, the wrong encryption method next to the header, but without adding the dependency. Anyway, it's basically, if you want it, you have a library. Standard library is not going to support it. I'm conflicted about it. I think it's pragmatic. It's not perfect. So it's hard, mm. it's hard for me to swallow this uh, decline. But overall, I think it's a good, uh, good decline. Also, I don't use uh, encrypted uh, zip files, at least not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> so it uh, doesn't hurt me personally. But still super interesting. We have more proposals to discuss. A whole bunch of them. <laughs> How should we go through these? Should we, should we like read them all through once and then go through one at a time? Or should we go through like a list? Just one dump them all. How should we iterate over this list of, of proposals? <laughs> nice. So we have a bunch of proposals and, and a blog post to talk about iterator support. Two have been accepted. Two are likely accept, although by the time you listen to this, they may be officially accepted because we haven't seen this week's notes yet on the proposal meeting. Um, Iterators. What is an iterator? Maybe we should talk about that first before we talk about these proposals. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, go super basic. You have a bunch of things, yep. and you want to be able to iterate over them. Yeah. The keyword in uh, Go, surprisingly, is not uh, iter, it's range. Right. Uh, because four just didn't have enough jobs. So they were like, okay, we need to give you one more job. So if we combine you with range, you do another thing. And specifically, this relates to the range over function feature. Which is an experimental feature, remember that. We it talk about exper- it a lot as if it's part of the language, but it's still an experiment. Yeah, it's experimental. It is available in 122. If you enable it, uh, it most likely will be full-on supported in 123. I don't know if that decision has officially been made yet. The fact that some of these proposals have been accepted certainly suggests that they're going that direction. So let's talk about the, the proposals. Uh, we're not going to talk about the range over funk details. Uh, there are other places to talk about that. And we will talk about it more as 123 comes closer. Uh, but the idea is you can use a specially defined generic function to, to iterate over arbitrary stuff. The proposal, the main one, is a new package for iterators called ITER, or ITER. I don't know how you pronounce that. We're really sticklers about pronunciation on this show, mm-hmm. so I need to get that right. I don't know what the correct one is. I uh, think, I don't know what you how you feel about the functions and the types that this package includes. I hate them. Yeah. I hate them. This is a useful package, obviously, right? We want to be able to iterate over stuff. Uh, and if we can make it simple, like go likes, that makes sense. And it's super useful in the standard library as well. It's needed for the range over func. Uh, and, but even if uh, range over func falls through, it will still be useful, right? For a myriad of other uses. But we ended up with an API that looks with the full Godoc that just looks hard to hard to agree with. Why don't you tell us about the, the functions and the types? Yeah, so I don't know which details to pull out. It gives us two types. 
SEQ. How do you even pronounce this? See, that's the problem, right? Like, I, I can't even pronounce this. Seek, uh, SEQ sequence with a generic any type. Uh, so it's a generic function. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to read this. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me try. Let me try. But okay. this is actually a problem. Like, programming is a collaborative activity, and not being able to say the things out loud would make it hard to work on it at an office, right? Imagine me trying to ask you, hey, what do you think about Seek2? Like, and by well, the way, that, that's the worst part of this. Is, is I, I hate functions with numbers in them. So the types are Seek, uh, S-E-Q, of a generic type any. It's basically an iterator over sequences of values that are that is generic. You yield the values one by one, and they could be of any type. So you could yield a string again and again and iterate over them. You could yield an int and iterate them over them again and again. And you return true or false as well to know when you're done, right? So the use case would be you iterate over a, a seek. And when you get false, you're done iterating over that seek of any type. It's any but generic, right? So it, it will mm-hmm. be type safe. It's, right. it, it won't be a string and then an int. You can expect it to be the same type. Just you can reuse the same type. The other type is seek2, which is an iterator over sequences of pairs of values, like key value pairs. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes sense. Like, what's the use case for seek2? And why don't we have seek3 or seek4? So I think the use case for seek2 is, is so they actually mentioned three common use cases, key value, index value, or value error pairs. So I don't think the index value is that common. I mean, I, I guess if you're trying to iterate over an array or a slice of something, the, you know, they come in order. I think it makes sense for the use case that immediately jumped up to me was uh, messaging queues with an offset, right? Yeah. So you have an append-only log, and the first index is not necessarily one. The index, because it's generated could be the latest offset you've read from the message queue. And then if your service crashes and you pick up from that uh, offset again, and you haven't committed which messages you've read, you range over the index and you report back, okay, I'm starting from offset whatever. And then when you range, you see that indeed that's the offset you're getting. I just wish they would call it seek KV or something like that instead of seek2. The seek2 and the function pull and pull2, it literally looks like a typo to me. Like I look at it and I'm like, it, it doesn't make sense. It's fair. It's within the rules of the language. It's within the style guide. It's all good. Just looks. I, I don't know how I would have done it better, which I guess is the way to say it's the best option out of a bunch of bad ones. But uh, no. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I, I am excited for the feature. I, I want. I have a library, my open source library that I maintain, I think would benefit greatly from this range over funk thing. I'm not excited about the aesthetics of it. I think it's ugly. I think it's gross. Maybe it'll grow on me. It's important to say that uh, it's sort of plumbing, right? It's not the porcelain. Yeah. Most people won't call seek2. It's kind of internal right. to do a lot of data types that we would use, uh, which jumps to the next proposal, right? Uh, adding iterator-related functions to maps, which mm-hmm. looks a lot better and was accepted. And I'm very happy about that, where we got five new you know functions for maps in the maps like package in the standard library which are super pretty right so we have all which allows you to iterate over all key value pairs in a map uh, as opposed to uh, just returning them all at once that's exactly where you would see the seek to yeah in fact horrible that, frankenstein it? type right because <laughs> it gives you the key value pairs but not as a slice but iterating over them right so yeah. you can go over one by one then we have keys and values. These have been requested forever, uh, even before generics existed. You know, people wanted the ability to return all the keys or all the values of a map. Uh, that will be possible using the iterator thing now. I'm still 
not convinced that there's not a case for a non-iterator version. Like sometimes I just want a slice of all the keys or values in a map. It's not hard to do manually, which is what happens. You do a for loop and build that yourself. But now you can do it with an iterator. So then we have insert, which allows you to sort of merge maps together uh, without reading the source map into memory all at once. Reading it in memory isn't the right way to say that because it's already in memory, but you don't have to copy it all at once. You can copy a key value pair at a time as you insert it into the target. And jumping into, you know, you said you have keys and values and you want to just get a slice from them, right? Mm -hmm. This is sort of, there's another proposal that's on the final comment period and looks like it's just going to get accepted maybe next week, which allows you to do that, which allows you to collect the sequence into a slice of elements. So you could really compose all these functions together kind of beautifully. Each one of them on its own looks kind of weird because suddenly you have to work with an iterator or a seek or all these types. But as a whole package, they will work well, assuming this function gets, you know, that the other proposals will get accepted, which I think it's a very safe assumption to say. Yeah, I think they're just ironing out the details, really. It's not a question, really, of will this be accepted, but in what form. So if you use keys, values, or, you know, even all on their own, they're going to be kind of clumsy to work with because we're used to working with map or with a slice, right? They're useful, easy to use data types for your usual code base and whatever. So you could connect that with the last uh, API, both here and in the slices proposal. So both in maps and in slices, you'll have collect, which I think is the way to say, give me your new weird uh, sequence types and just give me the types I'm used to, right? These proposals line up pretty nicely to give us a lot of that iterator, item by item, message driven, all these sort of uh, options that were kind of clumsier to implement so far. And generically and stuff like that, it looks looks cool. Yeah, just to round out uh, that thought, there are sort of proposals to add the same sorts of things to the bytes and strings packages. So you can split a string without having to do it all into memory at once. You can do, you know, token by token uh, and things like that. So I think uh, I think it's good. Uh, and, and as you said early on, a lot of the ugliness is kind of hidden behind the scenes in most cases. Like you, you don't have to care about either seek and either seek to when you call strings.lines. Uh, it just is, is nice and handy for you. Yeah, I think it, you might even like in, I don't know, two Go versions from now, you might use, uh, you know, iteration by default and not even realize that you're reading uh, line by line. And I don't know if they would want to change the default behavior because it might change the performance of so many existing programs that might be faster by like reading the entire thing into memory. And suddenly you're like, okay, let's do it only if the file is uh, smaller than the average uh, page size of the disk that I'm reading from. It's like you're getting into details that most people wouldn't care about you, but you might want to keep things the way they are for most people and then roll out an experiment where you change the default for like a year and then only after that year change the default from true to false, like do a very progressive delivery on that, right? So we might be able to use all this stuff really soon, but I think to make it default, it's going to be a really long time. One last thing uh, with all this uh, iteration and ranges and all that, we wanted to mention a blog post that uh, someone sent on the Gopher Slack and I really like. It's a new blog, which I'm always... uh, Happy to to shout out. So Richard Ulmar, R-U-L-M-E-R dot X-Y-Z, has a new homepage. And Richard is planning to add more articles related to open source software, Unix, and life in the command line. So no pressure, Richard, but all our listeners are now uh, <laughs> making your uh, website their homepage. But the, you know, the interesting thing here is his blog post about 
whether range over func is a good proposal, right? It's already in the language and it's already a Go experiment. But we have seen the Go team, you know, back away from stuff they've worked on for a long time in the past. I think the biggest example is telemetry, right? Community yeah. said no and Go team were like, okay, we're not doing it. Well, they're doing it, but it's, it's opt-in now instead of... Yeah, opt-in opt versus opt-out. Yeah. So they might back out. I, I think it's a relevant question. You know, it's a relevant article. And I'll jump to the end. It's short, well-written. You can read it. And the conclusion is it's a big trade-off, right? We can do the range over like split, for example. You can have a string and then split and then range over the results and put it in a library, uh, and if you don't do that, then you need to write the thing yourself. And it's useful to have that sort of mentality of keeping things simple. That's the cost, right? You gain, you can hide away the ranging over things in a library and do it sort of generically and only write it once. But the cost is an interface that's really hard to understand. I don't know how you think about it, but I think I saw you write in the channel that reading you know, funk split, funk, 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 <laughs> int string bool, fu- return funk, yield. You don't like that. So I, I don't remember if I, if I commented specifically on the yield thing, but yeah, I, I do think that this range over funk is confusing uh, to read. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I haven't experimented with it yet. And I and even when the proposal was first made, I kind of ignored it because I tried to read through it and I was like, this hurts my head. <laughs> so I think it's a very verbose way to to accomplish the goal. I don't know of an alternative, as you said earlier, I don't know of a better alternative given the constraints of the Go language as it stands. And my hope is, although my I'm reserving judgment until I see it more in public or more out in the wild, my hope is that the most ugly offenders will be hidden under the covers and we can just return an iterator and not worry that it's of type iter.seek or iter.seek2 or whatever and just pass it to a range and, and be done with it at the end of the day. If we can do that, I'm in favor of this proposal and, and all of the related proposals. But I completely identify with what Richard has said here that this feels like a non-go sort of trade-off. Like we're, we're, we're giving up a lot of simplicity and we're, we're turning to magic. And Go has always been about avoiding magic. Yeah, it's, you have to complete a generic function that returns a function which accepts a function as a parameter. It's possible. And, you know, people from like Clojure and Scala are probably laughing when they're hearing us complain about it right now. But normal people prefer their programs to be functional without functional programming. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't want this. Uh, although there is the counter argument, which uh, what is better, uh, functional programming or dysfunctional programming? <laughs> Uh, someone uh, tossed that at me recently. But I, again, the, the interesting line here is I don't want to imagine debugging range over funk code. And I think yeah. looking at the how the code looks, I agree. It's going to be yeah. hard for me to understand what's going on. Richard doesn't uh, say don't do it, though. The conclusion of his blog post is measure, do it slow, and see if we can still optimize without having a construct as complicated as range over funk. So I think what he's saying is it's a good first iteration, but it might not be the last iteration, at least not for now, mm-hmm. for, for this uh, proposal. So lots of uh, iterator-related activity this week. A lot of interesting stuff. So uh, from around the community, someone at work shared a living off the pipeline, uh, which is a cool little project from Boost Security. I'm happy to shout their, them out because it's a really cool blog post. 
So Boost Security, they do DevSecOps automation, basically trying to secure your shift left thing. They uh, collected the list of basically remote code execution by design, where you have a command line tooling and whatever, just open up your machines, specifically CICD pipelines for uh, remote code execution. We've had a few instances of, you know, this supply chain stuff being a security issue in the last years, right? Uh, some of it being political, people like changing their libraries to support some political messaging, mostly around the Ukraine war. Um, some of it has just been, you know, like malicious activity, people installing crypto jackers in your compilers and whatever. And some of it was just <laughs> trolling, you know, someone uh, who, that that person who installed the everything library on the Node.js and whatever. They list options for different tools that are normally used in CI/CD pipelines that can be used to achieve arbitrary code execution just by running on untrusted code changes or someone, you know, injecting your workflow maybe with a new version of a library and you upgraded and you didn't realize. And there are many options here. Apparently, MyPy is open for it because it does uh, evaluation of shell, right? So if you have Python and you have a plugin, that plugin can run OS system and you know, you didn't write the plugin, you're not in charge of upgrading it. So you just run MyPy expecting static analysis of your code. But in reality, someone is suddenly running code on your machine. The go angle on this, and I was, I didn't think about it. I was like, Python, sure. JavaScript, yeah, like for sure, these are open for attack. But can you think of an example where you run arbitrary code on your machine when you run go basic Go CI stuff? I think I know the answer you want me to say, but my answer is no. <laughs> what, what's the what's the answer I want you to say? So I think you're talking about Go Generate. That is true, but I th- don't ever run Go Generate in CI, so it wouldn't affect me, and I don't think anybody ever should. Why shouldn't they? You want to make sure that people ran Go Generate to make sure that the code is all lined up according to what it says declaratively, right? I guess I lied a little bit. I do run Go Generate in CI, but only to compare it with the code that's already in in my uh, repository. Hmm. So in that sense, I do run Go uh, Go Generate. I totally agree with you that CI shouldn't ever do a commit. Uh, I'm also in that camp. But if you want to check that the generated code is up to date, you have yeah. to run Go Generate. So Go Generate, uh, if you don't know, it's a comment you can put in the code, like slash slash Go Generate, which is used to annotate your source code with like stuff that calls generators. I guess the easiest example is you have something that generates your docs site and you want your docs content to be updated, you know, something different other than GoDoc, right? You want to do like some external whatever, Hugo build. So you add a Go generate command that runs Hugo build every time you uh, run Go build and then it generates the things for you. It's also useful for just code generators, right? You want to generate open API, you want to generate mocks. That's a super, super common case, right? You want to generate uh, mocks every time you mm-hmm. change the interface and you want the mock to update automatically. You don't want to remember having to update the mock interfaces and implementations. This, by design, has external programs that you call. And if you run it on CI, like for let's say, to comp- or even on your machine, right? And you put a bad command in the comments, then you can shoot yourself in the foot. And obviously, that's a problem when you have code from uh, third li- third-party libraries as well, right? Well, I don't think you will be running Go Generate on third-party code, would you? So you might do so by accident. You might go like vendor and then go okay. uh, generate dot dot dot, and you'll be surprised. That that's all I'm saying. But the thing is, 
third-party libraries are not usually maintained by one person who has good intentions and that's it, or one, you know, uh, benevolent dictator for life like Guido or, or Linus that pour over every single line of the code. Did you just call Linus uh, benevolent? <laughs> that's, the, that's what the acronym stands for. I don't, I don't make the rules. Um, so I could uh, sneak in, you know, bad code into good code bases. And yeah. actually, there was research done by people from some university where they uh, injected code into the Linux kernel and some shitty PRs. They on purpose added security vulnerabilities. Uh, and then that, that was their thesis. So it can happen. Uh, coincidentally, them and the entire uh, university, including staff, were barred from uh, contributing to the Linux project forever, uh, which I think is apt. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> But it is it is possible, right? It is possible that for your database uh, server implementation, right? Uh, client implementation, sorry. Someone will add a PR. You're a busy maintainer. You'll be like, sure, yeah, it looks good. Approve. And they snuck in some Go generate command into it. And then when your uh, CI runs and it's an open source project, so maybe you're not looking at the billing close enough, they're mining some crypto on every build. Yep. So it's interesting. I don't think it's a huge security vulnerability, but definitely if you're working at a company that's big enough, it's worth sending this list to your security team or your like application security engineer. For me, some things here were really uh, surprising. And it, they cover a lot of languages. So it's not only Go. You have JavaScript, you have Groovy, you have Python, you have some config files. Interesting, interesting stuff. And also some GitHub actions. Apparently GitHub script, Megalinter, Issue Closer, JQ, they all have code execution uh, possibilities within them. So interesting stuff. Some security uh, thoughts to make you worried when you start your weekend. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we have gone well over time. Uh, I think we'll cut it here and stick around for the ad break and possibly an interview. We'll, we'll discuss that. <laughs> yeah, maybe or maybe not an interview. Let's say, let's say like this. After the ad break, you get interview dash uh, comma error. Check if error is nil. And if so, you get, the episode will end. Awesome. <laughs> and if you keep listening, then that's an exception on your end. <laughs> All right. All right. This show is sponsored by you, our listener. If you are not already a member on our Patreon, we would love to have you join. There are links at cupago.dev where you can uh, become a member of our Patreon. You can support us financially to help cover the cost of production. We're not trying to get rich. In fact, we're not getting rich. We just did the math this morning. Uh, what did we spend? Uh, about $2,000 each last year. So to the show. you spent about $4,000 and I owe you about $2,000. <laughs> Um, I might have to fly over to Amsterdam and hand you that in like unmarked uh, shekels. <laughs> if you want to save uh, shy the embarrassment of trying to travel internationally with unmarked bills, become a member of our Patreon. Also, you can join our chat. We have a pretty active and, and growing community on Slack, on the Gopher Slack at Cup O Go. That's Kebab Case Cup Dash O Dash Go. Come join the conversation there. Talk to our interviewees. Many of them are there. Three hundred and twenty-six people. That's amazing. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah. And some people decked out in really, really nice swag, which you can yes. buy on our shop as well, which we just did the math. And it's it's mostly for you. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> say it like that. Um, <laughs> but it's cool. I like it. I have my uh, Cup of Go uh, cup here, which has been uh, faithfully uh, gone through my dishwasher like dozens of times now. And it's still... Uh, and it's holding up better than this 
this uh, generic gopher cup I have where the paint is chipping off quality cup ago. Yeah, quality quality cup. And also uh, some people uh, dropped selfies of them with the uh, with a new hoodie. Yes. Um, which I was opinionated about. I don't know if I, it's re- re- like reasonable to get one because it's March soon and it's hot in, here in Israel. But I might get one just to like, you know, close out the winter. It's still cold go. here. Yeah. Uh, so that's storeit.kapago.dev. Uh, and the rest of the links are kapago.dev as well. You can find everything there. And on the topic of swag, one sort of silly little topic I want to mention. On the topic of swag. That's not uh, the segue you can take into the super weird thing you're about to say. Why is this so weird? It is weird. But before it you go weird. into before you go into that arts and crafts project, we just want to shout out the new Patreon members. So Thomas Gal, that's a nice hack, by the way, if you want to get uh, shouted out twice. First join as a free member and only upgrade to a paid member later. Uh, so second shout out, Thomas, and uh, you found a vulnerability in our system. Please <laughs> report an issue and you'll get your bug bounty on the way out. Go generate join Patreon. <laughs> that could be, can you imagine? Go generate. That's how we're going to fund the show. Patreon. We figured it out. <laughs> um, no, we're not. We're not going to introduce vulnerabilities on purpose to make money. For you. only. We'll do that for fun. Uh, let's Hukenen. Thank you for joining. Uh, Faco name. Faco name. That was a really <laughs> nice seeing you. I haven't seen you since high school. <laughs> and Carl Skews. So thanks a lot. Thomas, Lutz, Carl, and Faco. All right. Weird swag time? Yeah, weird swag time. All right. So during a drunken conversation post-Fosdam with some of the listeners and uh, potential guests on this show, we were talking about uh, custom Go swag. The person who who ran the, the Go dev room had a dress that she had made from custom printed gopher fabric. So we started talking about uh, could we do that for ourselves? And one of the people at our table is wearing a bow tie. And I, I wear bow ties occasionally. You wouldn't know that from a podcast, but I wear one every episode. <laughs> I'm decked out in a full like suit and tie. Yep. It's really business. Yep. Yeah, this, is bl- this is a black tie show. People don't know that, but it's a black tie show. I mean, if you're listening right now and you're like in your sweatpants, turn off the show. This is a black tie event. You like so, leave your your AirPods case at the valet at the entrance <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> so uh, bow tie. Sorry, don't. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the 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 question is, or the thought is, what if we had some custom printed uh, Brewster material? So we're thinking about doing that. We're not going to put it on the store because it's going to kind of probably be a one-off thing. I think I will probably try to get some Brewster printed silk material and make myself a bow tie. Uh, but maybe somebody wants to make a shirt or uh, a beanie or I don't know, whatever sorts of things you might want to make with some gopher material uh, with Brewster on it. If that's something that interests you and you want to get in, we're going to probably do a bulk order one-time sort of thing. I'll have it shipped to my house and then I'll chop off the yardage you request and send it to you. Uh, if that's interesting to you, come to the Slack channel, ping me. Uh, we'll start a conversation. We'll see if there's maybe two or three people interested in getting some Brewster material and we'll, we'll make an order. Cool. That's the weird swag announcement. I am not a, much of a bow tie guy, but if you actually manage to put your hands on fabric that includes the gopher, the Brewster, uh-huh. I'll put that on uh, for the next uh, gopher meetup. There we go. Send you a selfie. All right. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, for somehow enabling uh, John to <laughs> like plan an arts and craft project of creating his own <laughs> custom bow ties for his own custom podcast. That sounds reasonable. Yeah, I do software engineering. What are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing uh, bow ties with a cute uh, gopher on them. Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. See you next week. Until next time.
Thank you.